Well, good morning. I'll ask you again this morning to join me in the book of Galatians, chapter 4. We'll pick up at verse 12. We're going to look at verses 12 to 20 of this chapter this morning. One way to describe what we have seen so far as we've been following Paul through this letter, uh, we've been listening to a lot of efforts he's been giving in several different directions, but all to one main purpose. Uh, he has been defending his gospel message that he has given to these Galatians in the past. He's been explaining things to them that they've become confused about. He's been exhorting them. He's been responding to false claims about himself personally. We've seen a number of, of uh, places he has needed to go in service to his uh, main goal. And I think you could, you could describe his main goal in this letter as being that of a search and rescue mission. Does that seem fair to describe it that way in light of what we've seen so far? Paul's on a search and rescue mission for these Galatians. Here's a group of, of believers that he sees as his children in the faith. He's the one who brought the gospel to them at the start. And they are in great danger. I wonder how you feel at similar times in your life uh, when you have found yourself in a spot like that with someone that you care deeply about. There's, there's probably few adults in this room who have not had to be in a situation like that. You have somebody, maybe a friend, maybe a family member, that you care about tremendously, and you see them starting to walk down a path that you know is extremely dangerous. So how hard do you work in those sorts of instances to try to get their attention? Paul has likened their situation in Galatia to somebody that has been hypnotized or had a spell cast on them. You remember Galatians 3.1, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So he's trying a number of ways to wake these people up to the very dangerous place that they have walked into. He continues that this morning, but our text for this week is a dramatic change. It's a shift in his argumentation. If you've been with us through this study, you will notice right away as we read in just a moment uh, how different this is from everything else we have heard so far in the letter. And the difference is it has been named often in the past like this. People have described what we're about to read as Paul's pathetic appeal. And when they call it that, they don't use the word pathetic like the way that we use the word pathetic. They're not talking about it like that. They, they mean Paul here is engaging in an appeal to pathos. Uh, this is not going to be an argument this morning like what we have been seeing in many of our passages. He's not arguing on the basis of particular facts or an appeal to authority or persuasive argument on the topics. What Paul's going to try to do this morning is to get them to remember their shared past experiences. These are people that are being slowly corrupted. And they're being corrupted both in their feeling and in their thinking. And Paul's effort this morning is going to be to try to get them to see how those two things are connected. Their feelings regarding Paul have been changing 
And that's because of uh, and as a consequence to the ways that their thinking has been wandering and changing. Um, he's going to try to get them to see that connection this morning. And it's a connection centered around the gospel. Their experience of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and their love and gratitude to Paul as its minister, those two things go hand in hand. So what he's going to do in this passage is fairly simple, even though uh, it is a powerful part of the appeal that he is giving to, these, to this group of people. We're going to see him do really three things. The first thing we'll see is just in verse 12, he gives a call to action in our text. It's the first time in the letter that he calls them to some sort of action. The second half of verse 12 to verse 15, he is going to bring a reminder of the past. 12 to 15, a reminder of the past. And then in verses 16 to 20, he is going to contrast that with the present. And that's all he's going to do. If you're able, would you please stand with me for our reading of this passage? I'll read from the English Standard Version. Galatians 4, verses 12 to 20. See if you don't hear the dramatic difference in this passage compared to what has come before. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's walk with Paul through how this adds to the appeal that he's making to these, to these believers. The first thing that we see in verse 12 is a call to action. This is the first call to action that we find in the letter, and it goes like this. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He puts this in a very powerful and punchy way. It's a really short statement that he makes here to them as he's calling them to this action. The shortness of it adds to the power of it. Unfortunately, when you have a really short statement, it also can sometimes make it harder to be sure just what exactly is meant by the entreaty. Uh, he literally says here this. He says, become as I, for I also as you. And so the question is presented to us, well, exactly what is it that he is calling them to here? 
And there have probably been several, but there are principally two ways that we have understood what Paul's trying to do here in calling them to this activity. One way we can understand this is to understand Paul as doing something very similar to what he did for the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 6, 11 to 13, let me read that to you. See if it sounds similar to what he's saying here. He told the Corinthians this, My heart is wide open to you. Let yours be wide open to me. So if that's what he's doing here, this is an entreaty to come together in unity and fellowship like they were from the start. Now if that's what he's doing, it fits with how he proceeds in verse 12 because he says, you did me no wrong right after this. So it could be that that's what he's doing. It could be that what he's doing is something a little bit more specific than that. It could be that he's saying um, that he became as they, just like he said, and we looked at it last week, 1 Corinthians 9, that he had become as all things to all people. It could be that he's going that direction, that he's still pulling on some of what he said in the passage before. So one commentator represents that way of reading this, and he says here, Paul effectively became a Gentile, that is, a non-Torah observer. So he calls on the Torah-observing Gentiles, ironically, to become as non-Torah-observing as he has become. It could be that he's doing that. That would make sense in, in the flow of, uh, of what he, we've seen him say already. Um, and even if, notice this, even if he intended the first of those two options instead of this one, it's clear that when Paul was with the Gentile Galatians that he had made plain to them his lack of obligation regarding the Jewish codes of conduct. We heard him say last week in 1 Corinthians 9 how he lives when he is with Gentiles, how he behaves. He behaves as they. He has the freedom to do that. So this entreaty in verse 12 could be a call to a return to unity, or it could be a call to a return to Paul's own lifestyle in Christ. What, what I want you to notice is that either way that we are to take that, the underlying point is the same, and it's this. There is something between them that didn't used to be between them when he was with them. I became as you are, but now you've started to become something else. Come back. This is the entreaty that he's giving them. You've heard what I have told you. You've heard my corrections. You've heard my explanations. Brothers and sisters, it's time to come back. It's time. And now that that call to action has been made, uh, the call to reconciliation around the gospel that they had once shared. Beginning in the second half of verse 12, Paul takes a very new angle here. He starts to take them back in their memories to the way that their relationship had been. Let me read the second half of verse 12 through verse 15. Try to picture this, because he gives a lot of detail in describing this situation when he was with them. This is what he says to them. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For 
I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. When I was with you before, your treatment of me was nothing short of noteworthy, unexpected, and impressive. He states that at the end of verse 12. He does it using a figure of speech that, I'll be honest, I didn't know the name of this, although we use these all the time. Have you heard of a lydates before? Uh, Here's the definition. This is an ironic expression that says something in the negative to make an understated comment in the opposite direction. That's really complicated. You and I do it all the time, though. What do I mean when I say this? That was no small feat. What does that mean? That was a big feat. Negative statement, understated, making a point in the opposite direction in a positive way. It's not the best weather today. What's that mean? It's bad weather today. <laughs> Paul does this in Acts 21, 39. I am from Tarsus, a city of no, excuse me, a citizen of no obscure city. What's that mean? I'm a citizen of a big, well-known city. It's common. It crosses languages. This is a way that we use figures of speech. And we've already been seeing Paul use figures of speech all the way through Galatians. He's a good writer. Here he says, you did me no wrong. What's that mean? Your treatment of me was incredible. And he moves right into the story. And the story he relates conveys that same idea. This is something noteworthy. It seems that his time with them in person had either the timing of it had been occasioned or maybe the length of it or the the specific location in Galatia had been occasioned by some sort of an illness that had come upon Paul. He refers to it simply as his weakness of the flesh or illness of the flesh. He doesn't give us a lot of details, but it seems like whatever it was, it was pretty bad. Uh, it, was, it was the kind of illness, and all sorts of imaginings can come into our mind. It's the kind of illness that taking care of him, verse 14, was a trial to them. So it wasn't a simple thing, give him a bed and let him sleep for the night. This was a trial to care for him. It's the kind of thing, verse 14, that could have, and you might have expected it to be something worthy of scorn or despising. But he says, you didn't treat me that way. Instead of treating him that way, verse 14 says that they received him as an angel of God or a messenger of God. They received him as Christ Jesus himself. This is how they received him. As they're in his midst, he is proclaiming the gospel to them. And he's not just proclaiming the news of the gospel. No doubt, he's modeling its effects among them as he lives. He's modeling its effects in the way he's handling his own situation, which is not good at that moment. And they receive him in a way that is fitting to that role. They received him and his message as if he were Christ himself in their midst. And then he asks them this question in verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? Literally, the question that, they, that he asks is, where? Where then your blessing? Now, the word then makes it clear. Uh, where then? 
It's clear this is a conclusion from what he's just been saying, right? So he's talking about the state that they were in back in those times. Where did that go? He might be speaking of the redemptive activity that has been at work among them, that began when he was present with them. They were growing. They were being sanctified back in that time in their lives when they held Paul in high regard. They were growing. And now that growth is gone. Doubtless, that's got to be at least part of what he's pointing to. But I think that what he's doing is actually even more simple than that. Because the word here for blessing can refer simply to approval. So, the, the, uh, and this is sort of the, what is seen as the gold standard in terms of understanding the wide usage of words. Kittle's Theological Dictionary gives this as a definition of this word. Listen to this and see if this doesn't fit verses 12 to 20. This word for blessing. The admiring praises with which people exalt honored men. So I think what he's saying is simply this. Where is your former approval? Where in the world did it go? That way of hearing him really fits with the rest of verse 15 too, doesn't it? Because the way he continues right after this question is not to start a new subject, but to continue to talk about how they had thought of and treated him. Where then is your former approval? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Where has that gone? That's how much he had received their approval, their praise, their blessing as he was among them and ministering among them. And they were seeing the work of the Spirit at work in themselves and among themselves. This is the way things were. But that was then. The better we understand that picture from that was then, the more clearly we can see the contrast as we come into verse 16. Now he begins to contrast that past picture with the present one. Look at what he asks them in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Their former approval and praise and joy with Paul had always been inseparably tied to the message that he had brought them. The good news of freedom and through Christ alone. The transforming power of the grace at work then in the life of someone who trusts in the finished work of another. All of their blessedness had been tied to the message that he had brought them. And when it, anytime that's happening and someone begins to depart from the message, it is inevitable that in beginning to depart from that message, there's going to be a necessity to create a distance from the person. They're going to have to find a way to create some distance with Paul himself. And we, we hear this happening in this instance, and it just seems to me that, that this is simply a classic example of human nature. I mean, it's almost a cliche. We know what this is like. You've got someone close to you, maybe a longtime friend that you know well, maybe a family member. Great relationship there. And unbeknownst to you, they start to walk down a path that maybe they should not be going down. And they know you would not approve. What do they do? 
What do they always do? You haven't even learned the situation yet. And suddenly, distance starts to develop between you and them. And suddenly, they, they start to find fault with you in a way that is coming out of left field. I don't understand. Distance starts to grow. Why is that happening? Well, the reality is it's happening because they know that you wouldn't approve of what they're doing. But isn't it amazing, though, how often it's the case that, well, that's the truth. That's not even, honestly, that's not even what's going on in their own conscious mind. That's not how it's playing out in their head often, is it? Because they convince themselves of all sorts of narratives that explain why it's your fault that this rift exists. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Nothing of my message to you has changed. The only thing that's changed is your posture toward me and toward this message. Paul is forcing them to remember what things were like before these false teachers showed up at their door. And it's an effective tool. One of the uh, images that came to my mind as I was thinking about this is one of my favorite Pixar movies, the movie Up. You seen that movie? I've, I, I feel uh, maybe silly for even trying to use it as an example because it's probably the Pixar movie that tugs at my emotional strings most. And here I'm going to try to use it as an illustration. In the, how's that going to go? You've got a... Um, cantankerous old man. Whoever, do, whoever is responsible for that visual uh, did a really good job. He is known in the neighborhood for one thing, right? His meanness and his grumpiness. And the <clears throat> uh, climax of the story uh, has him holding a book full of memories, right? Uh, made by his late wife, and he's looking through this book, and this book is reminding him of all the former days of joy that he had had with her. <sighs> and he suddenly sees, the music even changes, right? He suddenly sees something he has failed to notice for years. He suddenly looks, and he can see how far he has fallen. He didn't even remember when it used to be different than the way it was. But these memories suddenly wake him up to where he is. <clears throat> That's what Paul is doing with this paragraph. And notice verse 17. I mean, it just, he, he is so, he knows them so well. That's what's so powerful about this. Look what it is that they have exchanged for what they had when they walked in fellowship with the Apostle Paul and with his gospel. Verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. I think to feel the full force of this, we have to understand 
what is said in verse 18 and put them together. I think verse 18 can be a little bit harder to understand, but the two of these need to be seen together. Verse 18, he says this, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. He uses the same verb in 17 and 18. Both of them he's referring to the act of courting someone's favor. The false teachers court your favor in verse 17. And verse 18, he's talking about the way he is courting their favor. It's always good to be courted in that way when it's something that's being done for a good purpose, that's being done for the cause of goodness, righteousness. He says, that's what I've done. And it's what I'm still doing, even though I'm not present with you. So the statement in verses 17 and 18 is really depressing. You have traded, Galatians, you've traded me, who loves you with a genuine love, who loves you in truth, and loves you, (coughs) excuse me, loves you enough to tell you the truth, even when you don't want to hear it. You've traded me for a group of people whose only desire for you is that you would become slaves of their own egos. They want to shut you out. They want to close you off from me, from anyone else except them, so that you may be their devoted adorers. This is the intention behind what's happening to them, and they're going with it. They're making this exchange. At least they're showing definite, dangerous signs that this is what they're preparing to do. There's something here that we each individually need to understand this morning. If you get to a place in your life where you're looking for someone who will tell you what you want to hear and who will validate your thoughts or your actions without regard for God's truth, if you get to a place where you're looking for that, you're not going to have a hard time finding someone. You'll find them. But they will love you in order to get something from you. They'll validate you in order to have their own sinful choices validated. They'll validate you in order to gain popularity themselves. You'll never, find, you'll never fail to find someone to fill that role. Which means, by the way, the fact of that instance, you get into that situation and you're becoming defensive, and one of the things you say is, well, look, I talked to so-and-so, and and they, they, they thought it was fine. The fact that you can find that person that thinks it's fine means exactly nothing. It means nothing. It will never be hard to find that person. But what you will lose in exchange for that, though, is the only kind of true love that you actually need. And, in fact, the only kind of true love that, in reality, you crave in your deepest parts. Because instinctively, we've been made this way. We all know that we need to be loved by someone with a love that, in the final analysis, is not actually about us at all. It has to be rooted in something transcendent, something permanent. You could say it this way, run away from the true love of the Father that comes through his children, and you'll find a horde of friends who will love you 
all the way until your inheritance money runs out, to borrow from one of Jesus' parables. They'll love you until you have nothing more to offer them, and there's nothing but loneliness and despair at the end of that path, although there will be some validation for you before you get to the end. But in order to get there, you will have to have thrown away all You'll have to have thrown away all the the vessels of true love that God had given you. That would have been with you to the end. That would have never stopped loving you with the love that you really need. In order to get there, you will have to have traded them in and cast them off. Paul is loving them here with the love of our Heavenly Father. And you can always tell when that's the case. Because the underlying desire of that love will always be what God desires for his children. Look at verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is the love we hear in the book of Proverbs. From a father to his son. And that's how he speaks of himself, as their father, who longs for his child to walk with the Lord. Paul had brought them to Christ. He'd watched them receive Christ. He had seen the work of the Spirit among them. And it had been a season full of rejoicing. And not just for, for, for him, for them as well. They would have done anything, anything for this messenger from God. And he left there, having seen them established and growing. And now he hears. And it's kind of an awkward metaphor, isn't it? It's as if he's having to go through labor all over again and hoping for a healthy delivery. 1 Corinthians 4.15, he is metaphorically the father who has begotten those believers. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, he's the nursing mother of those. And here he's the mother in the midst of childbirth. Paul is a descriptive writer. What can we say? In each of these places, the life that they have, the growth that they're experiencing, or here the birth, all of it shows his aim for these these people. It is a pure, childlike devotion to Christ. That's what he wants. It's what he wants the most. And we can understand that, can't we? All of the children in this congregation know this. I hope they know this. They need to hear this. Guys, this is the kind of love that your parents have for you. Because God has brought you into this life in a God-fearing, Christ-loving, Christ-worshipping family. This is the kind of love that those parents have for you. And look, they've got a long list of of good things that they would like for you to have and to get to do and to have happen to you. Got a long list. But following after Christ, and I mean chasing after Christ-likeness, that is their deepest longing for you guys. And it's what we are all praying for, for all of you. 
Let me make one final comment before we move to verse 20. And this, this may not even be necessary for you or helpful for you, but it may be helpful for some. It's about this statement that he makes about Christ being formed in them. My comment is simply this. Don't overthink the metaphor. Right? Don't overthink what he's saying. It, it, some of us can wrestle in these kinds of ways. He's called them brothers. He said they received the Spirit back in chapter 3. Now he's looking for Christ to be formed. And is this some kind of a second experience? Is this like a loss and regaining of salvation? What is he talking about? Don't overthink the metaphor. Right? He is talking about the formation of Christ, Christ-likeness in his people. Alan Cole writes a, as a commentary on Galatians. He said something very simple. He said, no one doubts Paul's meaning here. It is the agony of the pastor watching for signs of Christian growth in his flock. That's what's going on. It's not hard to see that, but maybe it's worth saying out loud. Now, we come into verse 20. Paul has been forcing these Galatians to look back into their past. We've been seeing that. He's forcing them to remember the blessing that they had lived in while Paul was with them, serving them, teaching them Christ. They have let themselves... How possible it is to misread things that are written down, like tone, things of that nature. That's why emoticons were invented, right? Try desperately to help convey some tone. He doesn't have emoticons. They've not yet learned how to translate the raised eyebrow emoticon into Greek, or the one with the heart on the mouth. He doesn't have them. All he can do is write and plead, and he doesn't know how they're going to respond at the end of chapter 2 or the end of chapter 4. And he stops here in a very human way in verse 20, and he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I'm perplexed. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says it this way, I don't know what to do about you. The word he uses can also mean to be at a loss about something. He's not sure how far he needs to go with them, in part because he can't believe any of this has even been necessary in the first place. He's baffled by what's happened with this group of believers. I mean, I think you really get a sense of what Paul might have looked like on his face when he first got the report of how these Galatians are doing. And it seems to me the very fact of that, it, it, it's been helpful to me to think about. Maybe it would be helpful to you as well. Because what we have here then is an example of Christian love in personal situations that baffle us with people. We have those. Most likely we'll have more and more of them as time goes on and as the present evil age and the spirit of this age begins to come into open view more and more. We just can be baffled sometimes. Someone takes a sudden direction that you have always assumed only happens with people who don't know any better. Anyone with half a brain, or maybe anyone who knows even a little bit about the Scriptures, would never fill in the blank. And then someone that you care about deeply goes and does that thing. 
are our typical responses to a situation like that? I think there's two in particular, at least that came to my mind. One is fury. Such a shock. It, it leaves us so speechless that it's almost as if some of our uh, of the defenses we have developed requires some thought that doesn't apply to this. We're not sure what to do, and we just get enraged. And we jump straight to condemnation. I mean, maybe even breaking time. There's no attempt. If that's what they're, that's it. This kind of a fury. That may be one way we respond in a situation like that. Another way may be the opposite. Paralysis. We're so stunned that we do nothing. We say nothing. Because we don't think we know what to say. What we're seeing from Paul in this letter is that neither of those responses is what the love of the age to come looks like in this present evil age. Paul is as stunned here as any one of us has been. And we've certainly seen sternness in him, haven't we? But what we haven't seen is fury. We haven't seen quick, outright condemnation. We also haven't seen paralysis. He is willing to take the time to go back to the beginning with them. No matter what amount of time and sweat he has invested in them in the past. He's willing. I want to read something that was written to this effect. It's a little bit extended, but I think it's worth it to hear all of this. This is Tom Schreiner. I find it helpful in a number of ways. And this is one of the things he says here. The Christian life is not necessarily marked by straight line growth. Believers can be waylaid and set off course by any number of things. Love responds to people where they are, not where we might hope them to be. Love is anchored in the real world, tackling the problems people face. And it does not give up on others. When they, are, when they are not where we expect or hope them to be. At the same time, love longs for the perfecting of the one loved. When we love others, we call them to love Christ with all their hearts and souls. We accept them where they are while also calling them to scale new heights. Therefore, love cannot be confused with sentimentality. For there's also a stringency summoning others to continued growth in Christ. We're hearing a baffled Paul who has put a lot of time, sweat, tears into these Galatians. Galatians who are inexplicably, it seems, being tempted away from Christ. I think Schreiner stated this very well, and there's two things I think we need to take from Paul in this regard. Here's one. This is one thing that we just read. Love is anchored in the real world. It responds to people where they are, not where we might hope them to be. There's really something there for us to chew on. Because it says something about where I am. When I'm not prepared or willing to love in that way. One way to say that maybe is this. When I let the sins and stumblings of others shock me into a sinful, loveless reaction that was only possible because I have failed to consider the extent of sin's continued presence in my own life. It's the only explanation for
for the kind of shock that would lead me to a loveless response. We're always saddened by sin when it is revealed. And some sins can be far more stunning than others. But there's a level of shock that is not appropriate for a believer who knows, at least has some sense of what God has rescued him from and is continuing to bear with. There's got to be a limit to that shock. Second thing that he said was this. At the same time, love longs for the perfecting of the one loved. I mean, this, this sort of thing helps us to really have in our minds what the definitions are of love and hatred. It is only hatred that would lead me to cheer someone along or to help them along a path that dishonors the one who is my Lord. And our judge, it's only hatred that would lead me to do that. We see these things at work in the way that Paul is dealing with these that are so close to him. Now let me zoom us out here as we move toward the end of our time. There are many, just thinking of verses 12 to 20 as a whole, what we've seen this morning. There are many who write about this section and see uh, a theme of friendship to be one of the central themes here. This is the basis of some of his appeal. Maybe you can see now uh, why they might say that. Paul's appeal to pathos here that we've been seeing is not some crafty debate tactic that he's now pulled out of his next pocket. He can do this because he's writing into a situation and into the lives of people that he is personally intimately connected with. He has a history with them, and because of that history, he's able to do the kind of appeal that he's doing here. Guys, remember what it was like. He can only do that because of this connection. Seeing friendship at work here says something about how we understand the nature of our relationships. I mean, in this room as members of the body of Christ and members of a local particular expression of that body. This is what it looks like to be bonded together like we are. For Paul to write about it with family language, father, child, mother, makes a lot of sense too because we are joined together in this way as a family with the kinds of obligations and the kinds of benefits, long-term benefits that come with that connection. You see in this example this morning what we gain as we go through life together. As we gather here together time and time again together for weddings in our midst. Celebrating together. Funerals in our midst. Mourning together. Church business meetings. Caring about the future. Planning together. Prayer meetings. Seeking the Lord together. Coming to know the details and the circumstances of our brothers and sisters. What happens as these things take place with the same group of people over and over again for a period of years? God weaves our lives together. What Paul's done in our text this morning only serves to show us what protection and sustenance and safety, what a gift comes to us as the Lord weaves our lives together in shared experiences like that. 
victories, struggles, all of it. Sometimes we're going to perplex each other. We're going to require patience of each other. I'm going to require patience of you. And you will require patience of me. It's what a family has to go through, isn't it? But let our prayer be that the unity that we experience as a result will always be a unity that exists around our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what draws us together. In the context of a community like that, we don't leave a man behind yet another metaphor. And we will strive forward together until Christ is formed in us all. Because God has made certain promises to finish what he began. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of memory. Thank you for the gift that you give us in your patience with us. And your great plan, your contentment to <clears throat> gently, steadily, persistently work in the lives of your people. You work in our lives individually. We have personal relationships with you, each of us who know you. You work in our lives through the means of our brothers and sisters that you put in our lives specifically. And Lord, we have seen so many examples of the good that you intend for your people. We thank you again this morning, Lord, for your promises, which are great, your assurances, which are utterly trustworthy, all of which hang on the finished work of your Son, 